Hello, and live from America and outside the Matrix. I am Rod, the producer, Rod from Philly, the producer. We're having a little, little technical issues with our host, Lee Stranahan, but he will be with us. But right now, you are listening to The Backstory. And we have a we have a great show lined up for you today. Uh, live from Moscow, we have uh, John Mark Dugan uh, coming on to talk to us about how his tri- his trip to Ukraine and uh, he's made some uh, recent videos on his Rumble that is pretty interesting. He's taking people who are anti-war from uh, from certain parts of Ukraine and taking to him on his humanitarian missions. And uh, it's pretty interesting to, to see these people's reaction with John Mark Dugan uh, and him bringing these people on the ground and just, just to firsthand witness what's going on there and uh, their opinions changing. So that, that, that'll be great to hear from John Mark Dugan, and that'll be within about the next 14 minutes. And then after that, in the second hour, we have Ted Rawl coming on to discuss uh, a few things that are on the news today, uh, like the, Infl- the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, doesn't reduce any inflation, and also the Trump affidavit that uh, only parts of it will be sealed by uh, Judge Reinhardt. And uh, a lot of people are upset about that, but it's not um, something that was unexpected. It was expected he wasn't going to release the entire affidavit. So uh, we're going to be talking about that with Ted Rawl in the second hour. And and you are listening to the backstory. So, like I said, we're still having a little technical issues, and we will have uh, our host Lee Stranahan uh, to come on, and he will be joining us to, to speak with John Mardukin, who will be coming on soon. And uh, just to, to give the number out to anybody who wants to call in, it's two zero two five two one thirteen twenty. That is the number. The number again is two zero two five two one thirteen twenty. To any, any of the callers that want to call in. And just to discuss a few things in the news, people are still reacting to Liz Cheney losing her congressional uh, primary uh, the other day. Then that's still in the headlines today. Also, we have the the CDC's plan to focus on their health response after the pandemic failings, and so that that's another issue that a lot of people have been uh, discussing. And uh, it's uh, an issue that uh, I, I, I myself have been worried about. For the CDC's uh, major failure on uh, the pandemic response and how us as Americans have trust in our institutions, for, uh, you know, to respond to things like a pandemic. Um, obviously, a lot of the COVID-19 uh, narratives that first came out in 2020 and 2021 have all fallen apart, uh, mostly. Um, I think the, the main one that still uh, withstands or is still lingering around is the PCR test. And a lot of people are, are still uh, taking the PCR test to see if they are positive for COVID-19. For COVID-19, excuse me. So that's what's going on in, uh, that's one of the other headlines that we're talking about. Also in the, uh, uh, for in European news, a lot of European countries are like Germany are talking about uh, their nuclear reactors. They are delaying uh, closing three of their uh, nuclear plants because as we know, uh, the sanctions that they've placed on Russia have uh, limited their, uh, limited their gas and, you know, the big, the big worry is uh, that they're not going to be able to, to heat their homes in Europe, uh, in Germany, and other European countries. So, and uh, we have Lee on the phone right now. So, um, 
uh, just waiting for command to uh, connect them with us. So let's see. There we go. How you doing, Ron? I'm doing well, Lee. How about yourself? You know, I wasn't the, the technical problem. The computer was, actually. I was fine. I've been sitting here listening to you, hosting a show, Rod. Great job. So let me point out what, what I think is the big news today. The big news is that the Republicans have won. Let me explain, Rod. Did you see what's happening over at CNN? Oh, yeah, I was going to get to that, Lee, because I was kind of, you know, um, I was, it was another thing that was, was expected and rumored about is uh, the famous Brian Stelter, is, uh, he's gone. Yes, it's a national day of mourning. Brian Stelter and reliable sources are leaving. Reliable sources that used to be hosted by Howard Kurtz. Remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. So Brian Stelter came in. And eventually destroyed the franchise. I think that was an established show on CNN for years before Brian Stelter. Correct? Rod, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure, Lee. And it used to be uh, somewhat reliable back then. Yes. And it was, a, it was a signature show on CNN. And now, thanks to Brian Stelter, gone in the, the, the dustbin of history. Thanks, Brian. Good job. So he won't be missed, Brian Stelter, whose job was essentially, see, reliable sources used to have a valid function. It was a news show about the news. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. And it makes perfect sense that the news would cover the news since the news is in the news so much, and especially after... Donald Trump started calling out fake news, a, a show on the news about the way the media does its job makes perfect sense. But sadly, Brian Stelter was not the person to host that show, because except maybe if you brought in Brian Stelter as an example of media bias on your TV screen every week. You see what I'm saying, Rod? Brian Stelter's job was to expose media bias, and what he was best at was creating media bias. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, 100% Lee, and um, I'm guessing his, what's going to happen to his uh, partner, his partner in uh, Reliable Sources, uh, Oliver Darcy, is he going to go with him? So, uh, yeah, yeah, Oliver's been at CNN for years, and I used to talk to Oliver when Andrew Breitbart was alive. By the way, the last time I saw Howard Kurtz, an example of the way the show Reliable Sources used to be, I was at CPAC with Andrew Breitbart, and there was Howard Kurtz. And Howard Kurtz was civil and polite, and he didn't agree with Andrew, but he was civil and polite to him. He did what a good host should do, and that's why Reliable Sources used to be. And then I don't know what happened. I actually blame Jeff Zucker. You know who Jeff Zucker is? Yeah, he formerly ran uh, CNN. And yeah, I do, I do blame him as well, Lee. I think he brought in the worst people. I mean, Don Lemon, uh, he, he brought up to the ranks as well. Well, in a sense, you know, I say all the time, I'm 
an ex-employee of Steve Bannon's, but is true, although not as true, that I am an ex-employee of Jeff Zucker's. Jeff Zucker used to run NBC when I worked at Access Hollywood, and I would see Jeff Zucker around the NBC lot occasionally. It's not like Bannon, where I had his phone number, and Bannon and I would talk. I never hung out with Jeff Zucker, thank God. But he was my boss, and I would see him occasionally. And at MSNBC, forgive me, NBC, because he did not run just MSNBC, Rod. Jeff Zucker ran all of NBC, all of NBC. And NBC required a reputation under Jeff Zucker of being a very Democrat news network. Would you agree with that, Rod? Yeah, 100%. In other words, don't forget that Jeff Zucker took over CNN and made it very Democrat, even more so than they were, and that he was at MSNBC and NBC. NBC News is pretty Democrat itself. Forget MSNBC. NBC News became very, very liberal under Jeff Zucker. So I'm, that's why I'm saying Jeff Zucker deserves a lot of credit for the fall into, I don't want to say fall into democracy, because that wouldn't be what I mean, but you know what I'm getting at, Rod. It's fall into Democratic Party hackdom. Is that fair? Yeah, very fairly. I mean, uh, I used to, there used to be crosstalk on uh, CNN where you would have, uh, you know, conservatives and you would have liberals, you know, de or Democrats and Republicans uh, debating each other. I mean, that seems like uh, a century ago, but it wasn't too long ago. Well, and, and like Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson was on crosstalk. Remember, remember right, exactly. that? Exactly. In his bow tie, speaking of bow ties. I don't remember his attire, but I do remember him on there, yeah. <laughs> Tucker was one of those conservatives whose means to conservative cred was wearing a bow tie. For many years, Tucker was the bow tie wearing guy. Look it up if you don't believe me, Rod. But that was his thing. I, I like his way of dressing like, like a normal person better now. But those were, that was his move originally was to be the guy with the bow tie. Because it used to be on TV news, if you saw a guy with a bow tie, what did it tell you, Rod? That was a Republican uniform. Remember that period? Where on TV news, whenever you saw a guy with a bow tie, he was a Republican, you, you could tell. Or he was Peter Lavelle from Crosstalk. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Another famous bow tie wearer. So we want to bring Celtic around anymore, or Liz Cheney. Do you miss Liz Cheney yet? It's one day after the election, but do you miss her already, Rod? Uh, no, Lee, not at all. And I don't think she's going to be out of the headlines. I think she's going to be, uh, somehow she's going to be involved in the headlines. Uh, even though she's not going to be in political power, she's going to be, you know, pestering the uh politics and the media for at least another couple of months going after trump she's made it very clear she said the fight continues 
which she's got to fight against Trump. And she doesn't care at all that the voters were not against Trump. And the Wyoming voters, who she's supposed to represent, were not against Trump. She's representing one person in Wyoming, and that is Dick Cheney. Do you think that's unfair of me, Rod? Or do you think Liz Cheney's constituency is very clear at this point? Oh, yeah, 100%, Lee. And we saw that picture, or I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, of uh, Liz Cheney and Dick Cheney. Uh, I guess this was uh, this week as they were still campaigning for votes. And, uh, you know, Dick Cheney's looks like the penguin. You know, I know he suffered a stroke, uh, but, you know, he's got his that his face fixture like the penguin from uh, uh, the old uh, late 80s Batman with uh, Michael Keaton. Yes. And uh, so— that's why I said that earlier Republicans have won. Because think about this, Rod. Brian Stelter is off the air and Liz Cheney is out of a job. That sounds like Republican wins, right? If we had to take a measurement of how things are going with Brian Stelter gone and Liz Cheney gone, I'd say the Republicans are winning right now. No, no I'd agree. I would agree with you on that, Lee. Um... You know, uh, the whole Brian Stelter and CNN thing, I think, uh, especially after, you know, Trump's been out of office for going on two years now, I think people, a lot of people just tuned him out and uh, stopped watching CNN altogether. So, um, you know, he was just kind of like a fly, on an annoying fly. An, An irritant, yes. Now, another area of Republican, and specifically Trump winning, is did you see the latest public opinion poll? On immigration, did you? Uh, no, I no, I didn't, Lee. I did. I have been seeing that. Uh, I, I know Tucker also did a, a little segment on it yesterday, I believe last night, where he was talking about these uh, the busing from Texas into uh, Democrat cities that uh, these uh, illegals are getting off into in uh, in red states and going to smaller towns, and a lot of people are upset about that. So I, I didn't see a polling, but I did hear that segment from uh, Tucker. So the polling is significant, and we've talked. With people, Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies, about what's going on with the buses. And that's a big deal. And now that the illegal immigrants are in the Democrat cities, the Democrats don't seem to like them as much. Have you noticed that? When they're in their towns, they don't like them as much. Well, for sure, Lee. I mean, if you if you look at the videos uh, from th- uh, the people being bussed in or being let in, uh, there's a, a video circulating re- just recently where uh, I, b- I believe it was the National Guard. I think I said I don't know exactly who it was, but the uh, uh, or the Border Patrol just open a gate and let uh, you know flows of uh, migrants come through. Um, yeah, it's mostly a lot of adults. You know, it's not much uh, vulnerable children like they say it is. So it's a lot of adults that, you know, so, who wants so, grown, grown men and grown women just roaming the streets. And I believe I heard this on NPR. So I'm a little confused about it. But they said clearly that the latest public opinion polls on immigration show over 50 percent of the public are now opposed to what they say is immigration but really, it's illegal immigration, because I don't know too many Americans that are just against immigration in general. They're against illegal immigration. That's the latest polling. And that's significant, as they pointed out, because the elections come up in November. And I have been saying 
for a, over a year now that the poison pill, the danger for the Democrats in the 2024 election, I've been saying for a long time, Rod, correct, that the danger for them is immigration. Have oh, I not yeah, been sure. saying that for a while? Yeah. I think it's it could be a tie with inflation right now, but yeah, immigration's definitely a number one because uh, it directly impacts people. When you see, you know, and I see it, I go up and down 95 from Pennsylvania to Virginia, and I again I'll see grown men. Uh, you could tell, and you know, again, I'm first generation American. When I see a grown man who looks from Central America and he's like five two, five three, five four, he's wearing a certain clothing that looks like it was given to him, or uh, you know. It's, not something that you would really wear, you know, that they would go by and wear themselves. You can tell that these people aren't from here and they're just roaming the streets. And I mean, it's, just, it's dangerous for uh, a lot of reasons, especially with, uh, you know, everyday Americans, young daughters just walking around, uh, you know, school's about to start. Now, do you think the Biden administration should issue a sombrero to every illegal immigrant who's settling in the United States, a free sombrero from Joe Biden? What do you think of that idea, Raj? <laughs> they would, you know, obviously they wouldn't call him racist for that. They, you know, they praise him for that. So yeah, maybe he should. You know, there's nothing Joe Biden can say that will, uh, you know, they will be they will label him racist. There's, you know, he can give out crack pipes, which they did, and uh, he gives out crack 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 pipes with love. You know. Well, that was from the Hunter Biden collection. You've seen the Hunter Biden collection of crack pipes, of fine crack pipes, the commemorative crack pipes. On, he's going to be running infomercials at night soon for the Hunter Biden collection of commemorative, commemorative crack pipes. I'm, we're all looking forward to that. But what do we have for clips, Rod? Let's go to the first clip. It's just one whole clip. Uh, it's uh, Joe Manchin and uh, Jamie Raskin being asked about uh, inflation. We got, we've got John Mark Dugan. He's, he's ready on the line. Okay. So let's save that clip for after talking to John Mark Dugan. Let's take a short break. Thanks for telling me. And let's talk to John Mark Dugan. Is he in Russia now, currently, or Ukraine? I believe he's back in Russia. John Mark Dugan from Russia, coming up after this short break on The Backstory. And we are back on The Backstory and on 105.5 FM and AM 1390 in Washington, D.C., the capital of the empire of lies. We're joined right now from Russia by our great guest, John Mark Dugan, former Florida cop and current journalist who's covering the Ukraine-Russia war. Hey, John, how you doing? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Thanks for being on the show. So there's a lot going on. Thank you for having me. Of course. So there's a lot going on in the Ukraine-Russia conflict now. It seems that Russia is finishing up its Donbass operation, and it seems like they're now winning decisively and winning, you know, engagement after engagement with Ukrainian forces. So am I right that the Russian forces are now developing 
a lead that seems insurmountable. It seems like Russia now at a point, a tipping point, where there's no possible way that the Ukraine is going to end up keeping much of Ukraine. Do you, you agree with that, John? Uh, I do agree with that. Um, and I apologize for a little bit of delay in the uh, call. So, um, yeah, just pause when we talk to each other. But, uh, yeah, absolutely, there is uh, uh, Russia is really, really doing well. Um, yeah, it has uh, had some significant casualties on both sides, but um, uh, for instance, we were just in um, Sviatogorsk, and, and uh, Russia has really pushed back the Ukrainians there. And every 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 time you you turn your head, it's like they're gaining another, you know, ten fifteen kilometers of uh, front line. I almost hesitate in in saying the question because it's I was trying to figure out how to phrase it without sounding like Russian propaganda, because when you tell factually how Russia's doing versus Ukraine, Russia's doing so well that to tell the truth, it sounds a little like I'm hyping them, but I'm not. I'm I'm really not. And you Ukrainian forces are really suffering massive losses. Is that right, John? Yeah, that's right. And um, you know, we were uh, we were just in some hospital and um well, I can't remember the name of the town, but it had been occupied by Ukrainian forces and the uh the head nurse there was telling us how um how they had been abandoned by their commanders, like a bunch of the troops. 18, 19 years old, had been abandoned by their commanders. And these Ukrainian troops were sitting in the hospital crying because they were cut off and didn't know what to do. Um, and you hear stories like this all over the place. Uh, because, look, let's face it, these commanders, they're not stupid. They know exactly what's going on. And they're getting out of Dodge while the getting's good. No, that's right. And... Are you still embedded with Russian troops covering things, John? You were embedded with Russian troops when I talked to you a couple weeks ago. Are you still doing that? Yeah, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say embedded. Um, I've had a lot of freedom just to. I mean, I'm driving a Land Rover Defender over there. I'm going wherever I want to go. Um, and, but yeah, the troops have been very courteous to me, and not really. Not necessarily Russian, but uh, Donetsk People's Republic, Donetsk People's Republic troops, uh, and of course Russian troops. So I, I've been all over the place, and I, I wouldn't call myself embedded um, just because of the flexibility that I have. And the reason I have so much flexibility is because uh, the the, uh, the pro-Russian forces have done so well in pushing these uh, pushing Ukrainian troops back. If I, if if they hadn't done so well, I wouldn't be able to be driving my car all over the place. Yes, and I wasn't using embedded as a negative term. I forget, you know, I'm one of those people who uh, watched the Iraq War on TV, 
And so I, when I heard CNN talk about reporters were in bed with him, I didn't know until recently that that actually meant that the press was being minded when they were embedded. They're being minded by the military. Is that right, John, that you're in saying that when we talk about troops being CNN's reporters being embedded with U.S. troops, basically the U.S. troops are watching what they say. The command is. Is that right? You're implying that embedded troops are somehow controlled, John? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting. I had a comment on one of my videos today. um, And on my last trip, I don't know if you know this or not, but I took a, uh, I chose a translator who is a staunch liberal um, anti-Russian protester, an anti-Russian, anti-war protester. And uh, I decided to try an experiment to take her uh, with me as my translator to see uh, what happened. And she completely changed her mind. And uh, she was so shocked at the realities that were there. And um, uh, anyway, so on this video, somebody made a comment to me. And it was, I, I had never thought of it before. Uh, because she says, she said in the video that she's always listening to um, like the Western propaganda. And somebody said, well, it's interesting that you're in Russia and you can listen to Western propaganda, whereas us being in the West, we are censored so much, we don't have the opportunity to listen to any Russian propaganda. Uh, and it's very, it, it, it was a very interesting comment because I never really thought of the censorship in that way before. No, it's a good point. And we are getting so much propaganda. And a lot of people, I think, uh, even Americans, but it's especially true in Ukraine, Ukrainians aren't so ideological that they want the spin more than the facts. They want to know what's actually going on. Are Ukrainians just themselves bothered by the fact that they can't get a straight story, John? Are Ukrainians bothered by it? Yeah, I'm sure they are. I mean, I haven't really I've talked to a whole lot of them. I've talked to some of them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, because it's it's their country. And when they're being lied to by their government uh, about the realities of the situation, then, yeah, of course it affects them, and they're not very happy about it. Yes, and they're being pushed into this by the West, by the U.S. and the U.K. And what do you—if you were in charge of Ukrainian forces, what do you think they should do now? Do you think we're past the point where they need to enter serious negotiations with Russia and surrender and end this? to spare lives of Ukrainians, John, what would you do if you you were the Ukrainian general and you're looking out for the Ukrainian people, John? Yeah, if I was the Ukrainian general, I would have done that months ago because it was clear the direction that it's headed. And it's clear that the only thing that's happening is uh, uh, Ukrainian lives are being lost. And it's a tragedy, you know, because nobody wants... 
Nobody here in Russia wants to take the lives of Ukrainians. Um, you know, there is a reason for this conflict. And if uh, you watch my channel, I had a very good interview with uh, Vlad Dianego, the um, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs for Lugansk region. And he, he spent two hours with me laying out all the facts on how this all came to be and why uh, people in the Donbass region want their independence. And it's, it's, really, it's really incredible. And, um, you know... And, and let's, let's do a thought experiment for a second, John. Because at this point in the conversation, a lot of people who are pro-Ukrainian might say, well, the problem is Russia. But they invaded. Okay, and they're saying if this were end, it could end by Russia just stopping attacking. But let's play that through for a second, John. What would happen if Ukraine today saw Russia surrender and pull out? If Russia today surrendered and pulled out, what would happen? My prediction is that Ukrainian bombs would still be dropping on Donbass. Do you agree? Yeah, it would be an absolute bloodbath. Ukraine, you know what? Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian military has been dropping bombs on the Donbass for the last eight years because they don't like those people. And now they would, they, they would want so much retaliation and revenge. They would just go in and they'd start killing everybody. No, Russia leaving is not an option. And, you know, Russia never invaded. Uh, the, the people of the Donbass, they had a referendum. They threw out the government of Ukraine. They put in their own government. They decided that they wanted to be their own independent uh, republics because the Ukrainian government was so brutal to them for the last eight years, and they never kept any of their agreements. And so they declared their own independence, and then they uh, asked Russia to come in and help keep them safe. So this is not an invasion by, by any means. This is um, this was supposed to be a peacekeeping operation. Um, but unfortunately, the powers of the West pushing the Ukrainian government to keep this war going uh, has led to where it is today. No, a good, good point, uh, John. And you see my point. I, I really do see people on the news and on social media all the time say, well, Russia could just quit. And that shows us a profound ignorance of what's been going on for eight years in Ukraine, where Ukrainians have been attacked by the Ukrainian government, by the Kiev regime. Now Zelensky, but it was Poroshenko. And before that was Yatsenyuk. And uh, that's the U.S.-backed Ukrainian regimes been killing people who are Ukrainian. Right? The Donbass are people who had to leave Ukraine because they're being killed. And that's a real story on the ground. Right, John? That is correct. That is correct. You're 100% right. And so the idea that it's, it's that Russia, I, I view them as fighting back. 
if Russia would just stop defending the people in Donbass, this will all be over with. But they don't phrase it that way. They say if Russia would just stop their aggression, they, there was not Russian aggression start, that started this. What started this was a very aggressive, I would say killing people is aggressive. The very aggressive behavior on the part of Ukraine, which they refused to stop. Russia attempted to have them follow the Minsk peace treaty, the Minsk Accords. And Ukraine refused to follow the Minsk and Minsk II treaties. Right, John? That's that's 100% correct. I mean, that would be like you walking down the street with your family and you get attacked by a thug. Okay, your your mom gets attacked by a thug, and you jump in and you start beating the thug, um, you know, and then you start get blamed, you know, for your aggression against the thug that was originally beating your mother, and that's exactly that's kind of what's happening here. Now, John, if you're talking, I assume you are, to people who don't know what's going on on the battlefield. What would be your summary at this point of battlefield conditions for Russia and Ukraine? What is happening with the Battle of Donbass? John Mark Dugan, explain it to us. Oh, it's it's, it's a brutal fight. And um, we were, I was just in Svetogorsk, and I was in the basement where hundreds of people are hiding because what's happening is um, uh, Ukrainian troops— Okay, they're about 200 meters away, and they have snipers, and they're shooting at the people if they try to leave, right? These civilians. If you're if you're a woman or a child and you go out of this basement, they're going to shoot at you. And um, so we had to bring them food, uh, but the the Russian or well, I, I say pro-Russian forces because. Uh, it could mean DPR forces or Lugansk, uh People's Republic forces or Russia. Uh, they are pushing these uh, Ukrainians back slowly uh, but surely. And, um, you know, but it's a, it's a bloodbath to the Ukrainians. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a bloodbath on both sides, but the Ukrainians can't, they just can't keep it up. There's no way. And I'll tell you, for some reason, I'm reminded of one of my favorite dark jokes in the history of filmmaking. Have you seen Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, the film? Yeah, sure. Of course, a a classic in anti-war filmmaking. There's a line in there on Full Metal Jacket when Matthew Modine's watching the guy shoot women and children, and he's horrified. And he says to the American soldier, how can you shoot women and children? And do you remember the response? It's easy. You just don't lead them as much. That's a sick sick joke, but it's very funny. And these are people who the main thing for them, they don't think morally about how they kill women and children. These Ukrainian... Banderites, they're sadists in many cases, literally sadists, because we've seen, we talked about it, John, and I'm curious if you heard about it 
from Russian soldiers. We talked about the guy they arrested last week who had been calling the mothers of Russian soldiers who had fallen on the battlefield. You heard about this guy, right? The guy was calling the, mo- the, the mothers of fallen Russian soldiers on their cell phones. He would take their cell phones from their pockets and call their mothers to say that they were dead. Do people in Russia know about that? I'm sure. Yeah, they do. They do. It's it's sickening. It's uh, it's disgusting. And uh, you know, when um, there was there was a a guy who was fighting for Azov. Um, he happened to be brother of a friend of mine. Uh, the 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 girl lived here in Russia. She was pro-Russian, but her brother, uh, her whole family was from Lvov. And uh, her brother was fighting for the Ukrainians, and he died as a stall. And she contacted me and said, you know, I don't know what to do. Um, my brother died fighting in Azovstal, and uh, my my parents want the body home, but I, I don't know who to talk to. And uh, I made a call to one of my contacts there, and they were so nice. I said, you know what? Yeah, all fighters deserve dignity. Um, you know, when they die, we'll take care of it. And they 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 sent his body home on a humanitarian trip and um, took care of it. That's the Russian philosophy. The Ukrainian philosophy is a lot different. They are they are mutilating bodies. They are doing like these phone calls to the parents and the wives. Um, uh, they've even done like FaceTime calls where uh, where they tortured the people uh, in front of the wives. It's it's disgusting. Now, also, I like your opinion on this, John, because Vladimir Putin recently made some statements, and they're consistent coming from the Kremlin. These statements saying we're not going back to the old multipolar. We're not going back to the old U.S.-led world order. Things are different. After this invasion, things are forever different. And Putin's made it very clear, we're not going back to U.S.-led world order. Do you agree with him? Do you think that we're ever going back to the way things were before this military operation? And do you think that's for the best? John Mark Dugan. Yeah, uh, I think we can't go back. Uh, I think the United States has wielded its power corruptly for too long. Um, I, I think that they have weaponized the dollar against too many countries, and uh, the, and the countries are not going to stand for it anymore. Yeah, we have sanctions from 15% of the world population, but we don't have sanctions from 85% of the population. So the West is suffering greatly from the sanctions. Russia is not. Okay. And uh, Russia, India, China, Iran, and these other places in like North Korea, they are tired of the United States using its uh, uh, dollar and being the schoolyard bully. And they're not going to, uh, you know what, it's it's their countries, okay, 
their politics. They have a right uh, to say what happens with them. Uh, and it's, you know, the, the Monroe Doctrine should work both ways. And John, do you agree with me? As an American, I'm very frustrated by this because I don't like what this has done to America. I'll make an analogy, which will be slightly weird, but see if this makes sense. If we think of America as one of our children, for instance, if one of my children was constantly in trouble with the law and constantly picking fights and going around the neighborhood and picking fights with everybody and having a miserable life, he was always in trouble with either law or getting into fights. I would want that child to stop being a bully and to find something they like doing and do it. Does that make sense? And I feel that way about America. America needs to stop going around the world and bullying countries and start doing America. There's a lot of great things about it. We've made a big impact yeah. on the world in terms of our art and cuisine and all sorts of other stuff and our political philosophy, a huge impact on the world. But we, by going around and being the world's, I won't say policeman, some people call it that, but the world's bully, we're ending up in a disastrous place. So does that analogy make any sense, John? And do you agree with that sentiment? That makes a lot of sense, uh, and you're very right. Uh, the only thing that I say I wouldn't agree with is they're not getting in trouble with the law because the United States, they're not hold, held accountable for anything that they do. Uh, all, the, all the millions of people in Iraq, like innocent civilians in Iraq and Syria, that they've killed over the years, absolutely nobody has even given us a second thought. Um, but uh, you are absolutely right. They are, America is the world's bully, and it's a shame because America, as you said, has so many great attributes. You look at every single development in Western medicine, for instance, like in, in modern medicine, uh, 90% of it is from America. Okay, um, uh, science, um, uh, uh, research, technology, it, so much of it is developed in America. And that's what we should be focusing on, not going around the world trying to enforce, uh, force values on other nations and cultures that don't want anything to do with those values. Now, John, did you have any thoughts about the recent raid on Mar-a-Lago? And does it give you any sense that the wheels are really coming off in America? You're an American living in Russia now. When you look back on what's going on in America, do you get the sense that things are especially crazy? John Mark Dugan. Yeah. And actually, let me tell you something about this raid on Mar-a-Lago. And I tell you this as a former police officer, they weren't looking for classified documents. This was an excuse, okay? They wanted to get a bunch of people in there to seize everything that they could because this is a wild fishing expedition. Um, they want to try to find any evidence of any crime whatsoever. And 
once they have all of his documents, right, they can pour through everything with the excuse that they were looking for classified materials and they can try to get him on something. And, and let me be clear, they will be able to because in every single business transaction uh, that you do, there is some gray area that you can twist and manipulate. Um, and let me give you a let me give you a um, uh, an example of this. Let's say you're going for a mortgage, right? You're going for a mortgage, and you know maybe your credit score isn't good enough, so you kind of fudge your income on the mortgage application a little bit. Well, you know this is the kind of thing that's done in business all the time, and in people's personal lives all the time. And once you do that. People don't realize that it's punishable by uh, up to 30 years in prison on, in the case of mortgage applications. But, but uh, you know, in any financial document uh, that, that, you know, where there's some gray, um, it, it's punishable by prison time. You know, they are going to use this as an excuse to... to or through every aspect of his personal life to try to find something, just like they did with Manafort, just like they did with all these other people, to try to find something, try to find some reason to arrest him. Now, so I'd like, you know, as an American living in Russia, also you get to see the Russians from a slightly more objective standpoint than Russian citizens, since you're not from there. So... Is your sense, I've talked to Peter Ravel from Cross Talk about this. He thinks the Russians, people, by and large, he described it as they're sick of ideology. Ideology, he said, has not worked out especially well for the Russian people. And he was talking about under the USSR, a, a, a system that was primarily ideological did not work out well, in fact. And so Russians have a very realistic view. This is Lavelle's take on it, is that Russians are very realistic. Now, do you have the same sense that when you're dealing with Russians, you're dealing, by and large, with people who are more realistic about politics than Americans, John? Yes, I, I do. I do. Um Ideology is what is killing America, and uh, the Russians learned from this back uh, back after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and they will never put themselves in that position again. So, uh, yeah, they see America on a very fast downward spiral. Uh, I see the same thing, and it's much more clear to me now that I've been living here for a couple of years. I'm I'm scared to death for America. I, I got to tell you, uh, because I have friends and family that live there. Now that's a very interesting point. So, John, what specifically are you scared of? What scares you the most that you see in America? Well, I mean, look, we we have some things that are absolutely insane taking place in the world. In fact, just just recently, in I think it was Minnesota. The school board signed an agreement saying that white people uh, have to be terminated before black people, right, to make uh, to make up for um, 
past uh, wrongs done to uh, the black population. I mean, this is crazy, you know, and that's just one example. The whole transgender thing being pushed on children, um, all this wokeness, and then this holier-than-thou attitude when it comes to places like Ukraine, which is uh, backfiring and destroying the American economy. No, let me ask you, John, since we're talking about those topics, do Russians, regular Russians, the civilians, you know, people you meet at the store or whatever, are they aware of that woke stuff going on in America? Do citizens, in other words, do the people know the crazy stuff that's happening in America? Are the civilians aware of it? John? Uh, Probably half of them. You know, half of them pay attention, half of them don't. Uh, the ones that pay attention are absolutely shocked at some of the stuff coming out. And the, one of the, the ones that don't, when I tell them things like, you know, we have transgenders that put on drag queen shows for little children in schools and even in bars, they, they think I'm lying and I have to pull up news articles because they think it's so outlandish that it's got to be made up. And, um, yeah, so half of them are, are uh, half of them know about the craziness that's happening there, and the other half don't know, and they, they don't believe it until they see it. So, because it's not the America that they grew up learning about. Yes, and that makes sense to me. And... I can picture you, you know, having to pull up libs of TikTok and show it to people because you've seen libs of TikTok, the Twitter channel, right? Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Yes. Yes, it's hilarious, but scary because it's libs of TikTok is videos posted by woke people talking about their wokeness and bragging about it, right? It's not a, a critic. Who found something and it's taking it out of context? It's the people themselves saying it, and sure enough, yes, they're yes. saying, "Yeah, go ahead, John." No, no, that's you're 100 percent correct. Uh, these people are self-flagellating. They are um, uh, they are doing all of this to themselves, and they it's like they're they're proud to be so stupid. Now, do you have any sense, it's an interesting question because they're not asking for it. We don't see Vladimir Putin going up at award shows begging for stuff from the U.S. But if you had to ask, John, what Russians want from the U.S., if anything, what do they want? What does the average Russian, do you think, want from the U.S.? What kind of relationship do they want with the U.S.? John Mark Dugan? They want a good relationship. They want mutual respect. Because, you know, by and large, Russians, they respect the hell out of American people. Um, You know, they grew up listening to American music. They grew up wearing American blue jeans. They really respect American people. And as an American, I am treated so well here, right? Um, all they want is 
is just a mutual respect. Uh, but they can't get it because the West is insistent on keeping them as their enemy. Well, they can't get it from the government. I agree with you there. But let me get your take on this, John. I think most people, most Americans, actually like Russia more than we're told by the American propaganda machine. I think most individual people actually kind of like Vladimir Putin and Russia. Do you? I I agree with you 100% because, I mean, you watch, you watch him talk, and he is such a skilled talker, a... Um, He's such a polished statement, uh, statesman, and he's just a, you know, he never resorts to underhanded attacks like the American politicians do. He never engages in hyperbole, and uh, you don't ever see him um, uh, engaging in conjecture either. He's just really an on-the-point politician. He's very honest about his positions and everything. And, man, I, I wish he was the president of the United States, to be honest with you. Well, John Mark Dugan, great interview. Fantastic hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you, John Mark Dugan, for coming on. And uh, we'll be right back on the backstory. back. I'm Rod, the, the producer from Philly, uh, here on the backstory. And again, we have a little technical tub, little technical trouble with Lee Stranahan, our host, and he'll be joining us in a second. But here in the second hour, we're going to be having Ted Rawl, and you're listening to the backstory. And like I said, we're gonna, in, this, in this hour, we're going to be speaking, speaking with Ted Rawl about, like I said, a few things that are in the headline. Uh, obviously, the affidavit uh, Trump's uh, FBI raid of the affidavit that only pieces of it, uh, portions of it were redacted and uh, Judge Reinhardt has said, uh, said that uh, possibly by next Thursday after a careful review that uh, maybe more portions will be unredacted but uh, like, I, like I said earlier in the show, this was uh, not totally unexpected um, it's uh, such an unprecedented act to have our former president home raided for uh, who knows what? Obviously, we talked about these nuclear uh, documents that they uh, accuse him of having and un- un- unapproved confidential nu- nuclear documents. But who, know- who knows how true that is? And obviously, by this affidavit not being fully released, we were, we're not going to know anytime soon. Also, with Ted, we're going to be talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, and we're going to be playing a clip with a senator and a congressman from the Democrats who both uh, don't want to comment or or do comment that the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is not going to re- reduce inflation. And uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of Americans are going to be 
scratching their head of why uh, this bill is called the Inflation Reduction Act. It's not reducing any inflation anytime soon. We're now seeing reports of uh, school supplies where uh, we have parents getting back, uh, getting ready to get their children, their children back to school, and they're buying book bags, pencils, pens, crayons, markers, uh, copy books, and everything else that goes along with that. And they're they're noticing that the prices are going way up, and they're not being able to afford any of all of the school supplies that they were afford last year or the year before that. So that's a, uh, a a big headline that's been going on today. You are listening to the backstory. I forgot about that second boom there for a second, but uh, Lee, are you with us? Yep, sure am. And Rod, I'm on my phone because we're having internet problems in Chappelle, South Dakota. So great job, Rod. So another thing I want to talk about, because we're by these primary elections, and we had a court decision yesterday about abortion. And last week, we had a voter's decision about abortion. And I pointed out, now, Rod, when news came out that Roe v. Wade was overturned, you remember the Democrat lie. That the lie, they led people to a lot of assumptions that Roe v. Wade being overturned meant abortion would suddenly be illegal in America. Hey, did you notice that, Rod? Yeah, Lee. Uh, obviously, that narrative isn't being re- repeated too much. But yeah, uh, they were they were saying this is the end the abortion after this decision. But as we all, if any of our listeners and you know, that's not the truth. And I saw a lot of people on Twitter too who seemed to be under the impression that abortion was now illegal because Roe v. Wade had been overturned. Did you see a lot of people that seemed to think that in the first days? Oh yeah, Twitter was there was a lot of people freaking out on Twitter, and uh, you know. Um, we had a guest, Vanessa Beeler, on, and she I saw she put a post up on Twitter maybe about two days ago where she's questioning how much of Twitter is uh, is bots and spam because she says uh, she's at, she's not getting much uh, human interaction anymore. So all that freaking out over Rover's Wade, I don't know how much of it was actually organic, but it, it was a lot. And it was designed to fool people. So they think that if, oh, my God, you know, abortion, abortion suddenly being illegal in the United States, would be a big change. That would be a big change to society, no doubt. But that's not what happened. What happened was the decision about abortion went to the states. And now we're seeing states deciding. And states like Kansas, a rural, reliably red state, right? Kansas decided not to make abortion illegal. But after 15 or 20 weeks, it is more or less illegal, except in terms of rape or incest. That's what Kansas decided. And we saw a court decision yesterday. There's another abortion decision. And I've said this before. I think the result of Roe v. Wade being overturned means that the law of the land, broadly, because there's not a national law, now it's the state's. I think the result of it is going to be that abortion is illegal more or less after 20 weeks in much of the country. But I do not think there's going to be very many states at all where abortion is just straight up illegal. 
Do you think that's where it's going to end up going wrong? For political reasons, yeah. I don't think um, there's many politicians that want to put out, put themselves out there as I want to make abortion illegal and want to run on that platform. Uh, I don't think there's too many uh, men or women who have the uh, the gall. Yeah, and I just think that uh, I'm okay with that result. I'm okay with a result that closer matches what the American people want. I think the take on the American people, what they want is they want broadly abortion, there to be some off-ramp for abortion, maybe 15 weeks, maybe 20 weeks, but they're okay with that. But what they don't like is this insane stuff with third trimester abortions. And abortion has become so pushed that a lot of people are uncomfortable with it. And that's what's happened under Roe v. Wade. Do you agree with me there, Rod, that abortion has become something that very few people actually, these crazy laws like third trimester abortions like they have in California, I think very few people are in favor of that. And I do not think that represents the voters' will. This is closer to what people in general want. And it's not for abortion to be completely illegal, but some reasonable restrictions. Rod, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree with uh, the I don't I don't know anybody personally, and I haven't met anybody personally that was for third trimester abortion or infanticide. Um, I've seen politicians go for it. I'm, obviously, when you're in politics, you're gonna you know you're gonna go where the money takes you. Uh, but yeah, I do agree that um, most people have a uh, a cap uh, as far as weeks goes, uh, as far as gestation of the, of the baby and what they're comfortable with. And uh, I would say, yeah, fifteen weeks would probably be that, you know, because that's yeah, that, that's enough. That's definitely enough time. Now, the other topic that, of course, people are talking about is the Mar-a-Lago raid on Donald Trump, and there was some court action on that today, right, Rod? <clears throat> Yeah, that's right, Lee. Uh, judge Reinhardt, the same judge who signed this one, uh, said that you know they didn't want to hinder the investigation, so they only uh, redacted portions of it to be released. And uh, so there's a large portions of it that are yet still to be remain redacted until next Thursday. But I, I think they're going to keep kicking that this can down the road. We're never going to see, or not anytime soon. Let me ask you, Rod, what the hell do you think is actually going on there? What do you think they're afraid of releasing? Because I can't figure it. I cannot figure out what they're so afraid. They say they're, if they release everything, it will be like a roadmap to, to their investigation. Now, I'm not worried. Are they afraid of a Russian cell planted deep in Mar-a-Lago will be activated all of a sudden? Can you tell what they're afraid of, Ron? Um. I think it's Russiagate, Lee. Uh, I really do. I think this is a still a Russiagate and, 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 and an investigation. I think the rush it's still nobody's said definitively. Oh, the uh, the Russiagate was a hoax, uh, and all these people were hired by Fusion GPS and the Clinton campaign and, and, and Democratic Party. I think legally, as far as investigation goes, this is still considered a valid uh, pretext to investigate Donald Trump, uh, Russiagate, and the PP tape. And that's what's going to that's what's going to be in this. It's just like the the Pfizer's that were rejected. I mean, I think ninety 
8% of Pfizer's are accepted by uh, judges. And if you go to this whole Russiagate and Trump investigation, the three of uh, four Pfizer uh, warrants were denied. Sally Yates was involved in one of them. Yes. And did you see who wrote those FISA warrants, supposedly? I've not double confirmed this, so I say this somewhat hesitantly. But did you see who supposedly wrote those? Mm. Uh, I, I, I feel like I do, but I, for some reason I just want to say Peter Strzok just because he's in the news, to, in the news, but I don't think he would— uh, I don't think he would, but I, I want to say it's Peter Strzok. Well, what I've seen is Brian Otten. That name's come up. And that's a man who stopped at the FBI the investigation of the Hunter Biden laptop because he said it was Russian disinformation. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Command Central got me hooked up on a non-phone line. Thanks to Command Central for all your great work. Now, what I was saying is, Brian Otten is also the guy who confirmed that the SEAL dossier was real, even though it's not. And supposedly, I've seen his name is being involved in the FISA warrants. Now, I pointed out many times, a lot of people forget that there was a first set of FISA warrants. There was a second set that they got approved. But what happened was... They applied for a set of FISA warrants earlier in the year. This is back in 2016. That was denied. Now, Rod, do you remember stories about the FISA warrants that were denied? Yeah, I do, Lee. And uh, they were they were just so broad, and there was just uh, you know no way that any respectable judge could uh, sign off on it. And they were they were the judges would comment and tell them like, "There's no way I can sign off on this super broad warrant." And no, they, kept no. try, they, they kept trying. And I have my theory that that FISA warrant was based on what's called the Shearer dossier. That's a dossier put together by Sid Blumenthal and Cody Shearer, a longtime Clinton operative. Cody Shearer has known Bill Clinton since 1969, when his sister, Brooke Shearer, was dating Strode Talbot, Bill Clinton's Oxford roommate. So in 1969, Bill Clinton's at Oxford, and he has a long beard. You've not Taliban beard, but you know, he's got. What What did you think of Bill Clinton's beard at Oxford, Rod? Be honest. He he looked kind of like a hippie back then. Right, he kind of like a non-committal hippie, like a hippie who's not going to inhale. He does that make sense, Rod? Because you've seen hippies with long Jesus hair or girl hair, right? He, it wasn't that long, but he was shaggier than a mop top. Would you agree with that? Bill Clinton had a non-committal long hair and beard. I think you said it right there. He looked like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo with a beard. Yes, and not inhaling. But Cody sure knew Bill Clinton in 1969 because his sister, Brooke, who would go on to become one of Hillary Clinton's most trusted top aides, Brookshire, was dating Bill's college roommate at Oxford, his flatmate, Strobe Talbot. These Clinton has known these people since 1969. And Cody Shearer put together this thing called the Shearer dossier. And I'm convinced 
that the Shearer dossier was what the first FISA warrant was based on. And basically, a judge looked at it and said, this is opposition research. This is from a Democratic operative. I can't sign off on this. This is embarrassing. And that after that, after the FISA warrant was denied, that's when they got Christopher Seal because they realized they need something that appeared more objective. Does that make sense, Rod? Any questions there? I, I think a thousand percent, Lee. Uh, and this is, you know, I think this is a missing piece, and a lot of people don't know this. And you know, there's like again, like I've said before, this is all pieces to the puzzle that we've been putting together. And uh, if you remember, uh, in the Lisa Page, uh, Peter Strzok text message back and forth, they mention uh, Rudy. You know, Ru well, Rudy will Rudy will take care of it, and, or something something of that sort. And a lot of people allege that the Rudy they're talking about is Judge Rudy Contreras. And there, a lot of people believe he's the one who finally uh, accepted the um, the PP dossier from uh, Christopher Stevens. Yes, that's right. Because what happened in the first FISA warrant was it was turned down, but it was turned down, and this happens in legal stuff, with a note from the judge basically saying, I'm turning this down, this FISA warrant, but if you come back with more specific information and a better source, and I think that's what he said, and I'd like to find out what the judge said, because it's the reason we don't know is that FISA warrant that was turned down has not been released. And if what I think happened, happened, that shows that Cody Scherer, one of Bill Clinton's oldest political friends, Cody Scherer has known Bill Clinton since 69. Do you think Bill Clinton knows and hangs out with many people he knew from Arkansas in 69, Rod? No, no. <laughs> uh, I, but I, you know, I think I think you, I think you're right on this, Lee. And um, uh, if you if you think about what we're all talking about and why Trump was raided, uh, and uh, Cash Patel said, you know, Trump wanted all the Russia got Russia, Russia Gate documents uh, unredacted and released, and then you know, as he left the White House, they uh, they um un, you know they pretty much rescinded his order and. This is what it's all about. Maybe he had these documents and he doesn't even know what we're talking about. You know what I'm saying? So he can't connect the dots because he hasn't heard what you're talking about. And let me let me tell you who else has not had the dots connected for them on this subject. The Russian people. Let me explain. The Russian people, you, you know, I've talked about Mikola Lebed on the show before. Lebed was the war criminal who at the end of World War II the CIA worked with, and they worked with him for decades. And I've talked about him in McCullough Abed. You can read about McCullough Abed in a Village Voice article from 1986. Just do an internet search for To Catch a Nazi. And To Catch a Nazi was a piece written in the Village Voice in 86. So the Soviet Union was still a going concern. Right, Rod? And I've talked about it on a show a number of times. But do you know, I think, do you know I've never seen write extensively about Mikola Bed? I've seen it in a village voice, but I've never seen Russian sources write extensively about Mikola Bed. And the reason Lebed's important is the CIA funded and organized 
with Mikhail Lebed, this Ukrainian war criminal, a Nazi Ukrainian war criminal. With him, the CIA formed a group called the Prologue Corporation. And Prologue promoted Nazi Ukrainian ideology and propaganda, not just in Ukraine, but in the United States. Now, do you see a problem with that, Rod, with the CIA promoting something, promoting Nazi propaganda in the USA? Do you see anything wrong with the CIA doing that? No, I would say the FBI has left out that piece of information when they when they say that the uh, white extremist white nationalists are America's number one domestic threat. So you know they're leaving out the fact that uh, the CIA has created some of the will get a, a good portion of these. Not only that, but the CIA is acting against their own charter. The founding documents of the CIA said the CIA is not for doing operations against Americans. Does that make sense, Rod? The CIA was only supposed to do operations against foreigners. Make sense? Correct. But here was the CIA doing operations, admittedly, they admitted this, against Americans and promoting Nazi Ukrainian propaganda because they were towing a Banderite line. So the CIA was acting against their own charter. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. And everybody should be concerned about that, because when the CIA ignores one thing in their charter, who knows what else they'll avoid. So all this stuff, I'm convinced, is intentionally not covered in the press. But I, I don't think actually Russia covers this stuff too much either. I don't think I would be surprised if Vladimir Putin or Sergei Lavrov really get the role of Mikola Bed and the CIA in promoting this Ukrainian Nazi propaganda. So I'm going to go out on a limb somewhat and make a bold statement, Rod. The U.S. almost single-handedly paid for and promoted the Nazi Ukrainian ideology of the Banderites after World War II. For the past few decades, that philosophy has been primarily funded and promoted by the U.S. CIA. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, 100%. My accusation is that the U.S.A. is behind the Nazi ideology and that the U.S.A. has kept it alive and that the CIA... So, in other words... The media is trying to bury the fact, and you've seen this since the war, suddenly the idea that, that Ukrainians have a Nazi background is considered disinfo. You've seen, Rod, that people have been removed from YouTube and social media for saying Ukraine has a Nazi background, correct? Yeah. One hundred percent, Lee. We've seen it. we've seen endless amounts of it, and I mean it's a it's a one hundred percent fact. They don't hide it. So, and not only, and I'm saying, not only does Ukraine have a Nazi background, but the United States promoted and funded that Nazi background, that ideology staying alive. I I'd say, after World War II, if not for the U.S., the Banderite ideology would have died makes sense as a cultural force in Ukraine. But the thing that kept it alive 
was the CIA. Your tax dollars at work kept the Ukrainian Nazi ideology alive. Now, from what you've looked into, Rod, am I correct that the USA kept that ideology going in Ukraine? Uh, yeah, Lee. I mean, we have uh, the Speaker of the House, Slava Ukraine, at the uh, at the national address. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's out in the open, but at the same time, the media is banning people who uh, state facts about it or print uh, stories about it. So it, it, it's just been a cluster, a, a cluster. Fudge. Go with that. But, yeah, no, no, I, I agree with you. And this is why I think the media does not cover. You will find references to Cody Scherer. I'm not making this up. The media covers it occasionally, parenthetically, as an aside, sometimes. Have you seen mainstream media reporting, Rod, that admits that Cody Shearer wrote a dossier with Sid Blumenthal? Because I've seen it. They occasionally admit this in the mainstream media, but they just mention it in passing. Do you know what I'm talking about, Rod? If I didn't listen to this show, Lee, and if I uh, didn't look for it, I think I saw it one time. Um, uh, I'm just, I think I've seen it just one time. So think about how many years, and I think I've seen Cody share one time in the mainstream media. And you have to look for it. So they occasionally mention it, but there's no question. And here's the other thing we know. When Steele, Christopher Steele, the British secret agent, who was part of Russiagate, because his job in Brit the British intelligence agency, he's a blame Putin guy. Christopher Steele's the guy who blamed Putin for Litvinenko poisoning. Christopher Steele's the guy who did that. So his job in the British spy agencies was to blame Putin. When he was brought in, it was to cover up for the Schurer dossier. And if you look for it, you'll find that information out there. Now, we've got Ted Rawl on the line, so let's take a short break, Rod. And when we come back, we'll be joined by artists, cartoonists, and Bobby Vaughn, Ted Rawl, on The Backstory. And we are back on the backstory and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joined now by a great friend of the show, the fantastic author, cartoonist, and bon vivant, Ted Rawl, from an island off the coast of the United States. Hey, Ted, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Lee? Good. So let me try to ask that more articulately. Ted, how are you doing? That's I'm, a little more human, I think. I am. I'm. I'm excellent. So, let's start with French news, since you are a dual French citizen. Macron, is there something in the nature of the French people, of Frenchmen, that doesn't like nuclear disaster? Is there something <laughs> about the French that don't romanticize nuclear catastrophes, Dad? That because might, Macron, that might be a nuclear French thing, maybe. Yes, because Macron is talking to Zelensky and underlining what you're doing, dude, is dangerous. 
right? Macron is, Gonzalezian said, stop lobbing missiles at this nuclear power plant, even though you're blaming Russia. And he didn't question him on that. But he questioned Zelensky lobbing missiles at a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Correct, Ted? Yes, he, he did. That's right. Now, now, talk about that. How did he get together with Zelensky? What's his concern there? Well, I mean, you know, Macron has sent many signals since the begin since March that, you know, even though he and France are on Team Ukraine, uh, it's sort of just barely. You know, I mean, basically, he's on Team Ukraine the way that Joe Manchin is on Team Democrat. So he's, you know, he's part of the team, but he's not enthusiastic about it, and he's not on board with everything, and he hasn't drunk the Kool-Aid. So, I mean, I think— Is it is uh, it fair it, to say, in fairness, Ted, let me just stop you for one second to see if we can balance this out. Is it fair to say he's on Team Ukraine the way Liz Cheney is on Team Republican? Is that the same think, analogy that you're making? I think, um, yeah, I think that's about the same. Um, yeah, uh, it's a, it's the same thing. I mean, so he's a, you know, a, a, a pro-Ukraine in name only, basically. Uh, and so, you know, France is a very important country still, and therefore their voice matters. They're arguably the number two most important country in Europe after, uh, you know, continental Europe, uh, after Germany, I would say, within the EU construct. Um, but anyway, uh, he's, yeah, so he's the one who tries to rein in Zelensky's more extreme, uh, you know, uh, impulses. And, you know, it, one of the things that's sort of been forgotten about this nuclear imbroglio is the fact that, uh, you know, a few months ago, when Russian forces were occupying the, uh, the, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, uh, there was concern that uh, Russian forces would somehow screw up and, uh, and and lead to some kind of disaster, cut the power, which would uh, make it impossible to keep the cooling facilities going, and there could be some kind of uh, problem there. That you know the, that didn't happen, and the the Russians permitted uh, Ukrainian and outside forces to come in, uh, scientists to come in, and run things to make sure that didn't happen. So uh, you know uh, when it comes to uh, doing the right thing when it comes to nuclear power. So far, uh, you know, it's the Russians are, have a little more glory on them than the Ukrainians. Now, Dad, also, parenthetically, I didn't realize how bloody the French people were. Let me explain that. Uh, in looking into history, I literally did not know how very violent French history is. And are you familiar with, in Paris... The catacombs, you you familiar yes. with those? Yes, I, I, yeah, I have, I have visited the catacombs. Yes. Okay, so explain to people who who might not, because I'm one of them. I didn't know about the catacombs two weeks ago, and now I can't unsee it. Ted, it's a horrible image, the way they look. Will you agree? Yes, um, I would. I mean, it's it, it's if you. The, by the way, there's similar catacombs on the outskirts of Rome. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a very strong reminder of your mortality. Let's put it that way. Yes. So explain people using your artist skill, artistic skills to describe it 
in an artistic way, what indeed are the catacombs in Paris? And and like you say, in, in Rome, too. But what are the catacombs? Ted? Well, so um, basically it's a, you know, there, there are a series of tunnels uh, dug underneath each city uh, where the where you where you will see uh, in different configurations um, bones of dead people. Um, some of them are presented in some of them are just sort of in pockets, uh, you know, sort of disassembled. Uh, some of them are, you know, there's piles of skulls arranged in certain orders. Um, you know, it's 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 like it's it's kind of like the ultimate horror show, uh, but at the same time, it's. It's also when you're when you actually go in person, the fun the thing that you really come away from it's worse by photography than it is in person. In person, it's more like dust and the smell of dirt and just sort of like this awareness that you're underground and there's human bones, but they're so abstract that you don't kind of feel the full horror of it. If that makes any sense, um, in the you know it's one of those weird things where uh, reality is is not is kind of not as bad as the photographic two-dimensional image. So yeah, I'm not I'm not saying especially bloody, but I'm saying very bloody. And I wasn't aware of it because again, this is ignorance on my part, but I for some reason thought of the French as kind of wimpy and genteel, perhaps as the Berets said, but I didn't think of France as having especially bloody history. And so that's my fault. But do you think a lot of people think the French are more genteel than... They just have a realistic history for a lot of European nations, right? Yeah, I think... Yeah, no, I mean, Europe is, is a bloodbath. I mean, look, French history is... I mean, you know, if you just think about by itself... The numerous bloody wars, you know, typically named after years, right? The Twenty Years' War, the Forty Years' War, the Eighty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War, that that raged throughout the Middle Ages, the War of the Roses. Um, you know, that was just the wars with England. They went on and on and on, and you know, the it was at that time, of course, England laid claim to much of north northern France. And uh, so northern France was sort of basically external England. And man, I mean, the, the wars over that territory just raged for centuries. And that's not even including all the uh, conflicts with the Germans and obviously the invasion of Russia. And I mean, it goes on and on and on. No, right. Yeah, yes. Good, good point. Now, Ted, you're in Manhattan, New York. So... There, right now, the big battle is between various lawyers and Donald Trump. And today we had one of Donald Trump's organization's top people testifying against Trump. Do you want to talk about that, Ted? What's happening in New York with the yeah, trial? Yeah, Trump's, Trump's, yeah, Trump's uh, former CFO, for the Trump, or to be more precise, the Trump organization's uh, tr uh, CFO, uh, pled guilty to 15 felony counts, uh, and he's going to get a very uh, basically business fraud. Um, he's going to be, uh, and basically, these are kind of minor counts when you dig on them. I mean, yeah, they're felonies, but you know there are felonies, and then there are felonies. What a lot of these have to do with is that he himself 
received things uh, like free plane tickets. And uh, when you work for a company or when you work at, when you work and if you are paid in the form of non-cash compensation, let's say, let's say your company gives you the use of a car for the year or they, they fly you around and it's not for business, but let's say you, you use some of those flights to go on vacation. Uh, you're supposed to declare the value of those um, things, those, those, those favors uh, on your tax return as income. And he didn't do that. So that's, that's basically what they nailed him on personally. And they flipped, they got him to flip. But in the negotiations, he refused to negotiate to uh, flip against the former president himself. But he is going to, he has agreed to testify in exchange for a light sentence of five months in, or sorry, less than that, um, in I think like 51 days or 41 days, I forget, something like that, like two months worth. Uh, he's going to go to uh, to prison for a short time and he's going to uh, talk about the Trump organization instead. So obviously that was something that, you know, that was a red, testifying against Trump personally was a line in the sand. Uh, this, it seems like the New York Attorney General's office is not done with this and they're following all the leads that they can. And, you know, I think it's, there's nobody knows. I don't even think they know if they're going to go all the way to the former president or not. Um, but the so far, they're not there yet. Well, I heard they were about to raid the cafeteria at the Trump Tower because they're going after the Trump ham sandwich next, Ted. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, going... I, thought, I thought he was going to go after that, uh, that, that, that big uh, that, the Mexican restaurant that he likes so much in the lobby of Trump Tower. That's right. And and uh, Joe Biden's there looking for breakfast tacos, but uh, <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about some other legal services going on. Greg Abbott, the mayor, the the governor of Texas, has been sending buses and dropping illegal immigrants off in New York, and for some reason. Eric Adams is not as in favor of illegal immigration when it's showing up in New York. What do you make of that situation, Ted? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's political grandstanding on the highest order, particularly by Texas Governor Abbott. I mean, let's face it. Um, the part that's sleazy about it really is, you know, what did Eric Adams ever do to Texas? Right? What did New York City ever do to Texas? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like if Texas wants to go to war— uh, with uh, you know a, a neighbor with another state should probably be they should probably pick a fight with a state that did them wrong, uh, but but this is not the case here. So um, you know New Yorkers, I mean you know New Yorkers are basically greeting this with a shrug because it takes a lot more than you know an occasional busload of of fifty or sixty illegal immigrants to uh, change the makeup of this city. Uh, you know it's we have eight million eight point two million people here. Uh, it's it's like whatever, no big deal. We have lots of undocumented workers, and there's all sorts of volunteer groups that are set up to help with this. You know, it's sort of like a collective eye roll. But, you know, I mean, I think symbolically, Eric Adams rightly views it as a diss, because it is a diss. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's rude. You know, I mean, I've been to Texas, and uh, one of the things I always thought Texans were was polite, but I guess not. Now, when you went to Texas, did you get in there legally or did you sneak in? <laughs> I did I did come in legally. 
uh, indeed, I, I did. Um, I had a really good experience in Texas. You know, my, my car broke down on a Sunday during a holiday right in front of a car, the dealership that the car belonged to. And the, the, this guy in a, in, a, in a suit and tie came out. And, he's, and he was just like, hey, I'll, I'll fix your car. I used to be a mechanic. And, and he got under the hood, even though he didn't work in, in service anymore. And he did it for free. I like Texas. That's great. That's great. Because, uh, well, that's, that, that's great. You, you had a good experience there. But if you had come in Texas illegally, you could have gotten a free bus trip back to New York, Ted. So I'm trying to save you money on your next trip. The free round trip pass to New York. Courtesy That'll be smart. Of- I'll, I, I, I'll fly one way to Mexico, cross from cross the Rio Grande, and then get the free bus ride home. Congratulations. Now I pointed out one thing I've noticed about we've had weeks of primaries this summer. One thing I pointed out is I do not remember a single, and I do, really don't remember one, a single surprise, a single thing that on the Wednesday we said it was a shocking upset. Liz Cheney was expected to lose in Wyoming, and she lost. And all these people who were expected to win won. Can you remember any surprises this primary season where someone who's expected to win lost? Any of those said they... Uh, yeah, actually, I, I would I would push back against that. I mean, it's, they're not big surprises, but it wasn't clear that Sarah Palin was going to come in in the top two, um, and she did. It was expected that she was going to come in third in Alaska for the uh, for the uh, congressional seat that she's running for. And now it seems like she I would say she's favored to prevail, uh, you know, in the it, overall. And then um, I I think Liz Cheney lost by an even greater margin than anybody expected. I mean, we knew she was going to get drubbed, but she got destroyed. I mean, it's one of the most devastating defeats uh, in American political history. I mean, especially when you consider what a prominent figure she was and the fact that turnout was very high uh, for that Wyoming primary. So, I mean, she got clobbered. I mean, you know, they, they wiped the floor with her. The fact that She's even dares to show her face in public now is amazing. Well, I'd say in Sarah Palin's case, it's not surprising to me because in one category, there's no question Sarah Palin's a winner, which is name recognition. Who is Sarah Palin even running against? For do you see what I'm saying? Everybody knows oh, no, Sarah I, Palin. I, t- I totally, I totally see what you're saying. Also, I think the main criticism against her was very weak. Um, it was they called they said that she was a quitter because she had quit her job. She had resigned the governorship in order to run for uh, president for vice president under McCain in 2000 uh, in 2008. And, you know, I mean, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous um, you know, criticism. If she'd kept the job, then she would have just not really she would have been phoning it in, barely serving as governor, not being attentive to the needs of her state while she was on the campaign trail with McCain. I mean, you know, that, that's just stupid. And I think, you know, probably a lot of Alaska voters see right through it. And let me also because we're going to go, go to a clip here in a second of Joe Manchin. And you mentioned Joe Manchin before. But let me on a serious tip, point out one big difference between Joe Manchin and Liz Cheney. So whatever criticism 
you may have of them. I think this is the difference, and I want to see if you agree, Ted. Joe Manchin, I think, is representing the people who elected him. In other words, I think Joe Manchin roughly represents the voters of West Virginia. And I think Liz Cheney was not representing the voters of Wyoming. People in Wyoming don't hate Trump the way Liz Cheney does. And do you agree with that, broadly, Ted? Oh, yeah. No, that's totally true. I mean, it was kind of like, do you even know what state you're, you know, you're representing? And she was, she went off on, yeah, I mean, she went rogue. Yes. And in a sense, I think if you're going to criticize Joe Manchin, sometimes people do, then criticize his constituents, then say, I don't agree with the people of West Virginia. But I think a lot of the positions Manchin takes are, do you think Manchin takes fairly represents his constituents, the people who voted for him in West Virginia? What do you think about that, Ted? Um, I think mostly. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair statement. I mean, there's some exceptions. Uh, I think Build Back, you know, when, when he came out against Build Back Better and that there was a lot of infrastructure in that, you know, I kept thinking of uh, former West Virginia Senator, uh, you know, Byrd, uh, Robert Byrd, who was really famous for bringing infrastructure back to a, a very rural state that desperately needed it. And, uh, you know, he, that's something that Manchin could have done. And, you know, he, he chose not to. And a lot of the infrastructure Byrd put in is now, you know, a little worn and could probably stand to be updated or replaced or added to. Uh, so, you know, West Virginia is a beautiful state, and, but, it, you know, it, it's, it's definitely still a little more rustic than it needs to be. So, um, you know, I think uh, so in that sense. But yes, oh, broadly speaking, yeah, he's representing the politics of his state. And my name can't drop the who's the senator from West Virginia who's from the billionaire family? Do, was it? DuPont? Oh, wait, Rock, was it, wasn't it Rock, well, well there, was, there was a Rockefeller from West Virginia, yes, wasn't there? Yes, there was a Rockefeller. That's what I was thinking of. Jay Rockefeller. West Virginia. It's very strange. Very, that, it's very it's weird that he was from West Virginia. Yes, it is. Because he wasn't from West Virginia. But he went there originally to help them because they're so poor that he fell in love with the people and the you're right. West Virginia is. Have you done? Let me talk to our stuff. Ted, have you ever driven the Appalachian Trail? Uh, no, I have not driven it, but I did. I did have one of the more esoteric travels of my life is I decided just apropos of no reason to draw, to spend an entire month driving around West Virginia and nothing but West Virginia. And it was wow. great. Uh, it was really because I thought, well, this is a state I really know nothing about. Um, I used to just drive through that little sliver near Wheeling that's about 20 miles across on Interstate right. 70. And uh, yep. from my hometown of Dayton back to New York across the Pennsylvania Turnpike all the time. And uh, and I was like, I want to know more about this. And so I went and did it. And I really, you know, I, obviously it's not like living there, but I, I did see a lot of the state. Well, let me, as a tourist, advise you. If you get a chance to drive the Appalachian Trail, it is one of the most beautiful drives in the country, along with Route 1 
on the West Coast. But the Appalachian Trail, because it's mountainous and a lot of woods, it catches up with you gradually. It's not like, you know, you've driven Route 1 up the West Coast in California, right? Of course, the Pacific Coast Highway. Absolutely. I've done it several times. Well, you know, there's some parts where you go around a corner and it takes your breath away around by Big Sur or something like that, where the view is so beautiful and it's so foreign to what most people see that it takes your breath away. West Virginia is not exactly like that, but it's a beauty that builds on you because it's not spectacularly beautiful, but it's routinely beautiful. Does that make sense, Ted? Well, yeah, and I think West Virginia is also, I mean, California's beauty is dry and craggy, and um, West Virginia's beauty is uh, verdant and, um, you yes. know, very, it's woodsy, and it, it feels more like, um, well, it's, it's it's more hospitable. You know, you, you don't feel, like, if you broke down in the middle of, you know, California, you feel like, oh, my God, I better have a couple of bottles of, you know, <laughs> water. It's very dry. It's desert. It's scrub. But, you know, West Virginia feels hospitable, like human beings were meant to live there. And that's why a safety tip, if you're going through the desert in California, do what Paul Pelosi does. Always have a gallon of wine in the back of your car. <laughs> so let's play this clip. This is Joe Manchin talking about the recent uh, Build Back Better. is essentially now the anti-inflation bill, right, Ted? But a lot yeah, inexpli- of back better. Inexplicably. When it, yeah. So let's hear that clip from Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia. Hit it. Leading to call this the Inflation Reduction Act for Americans when it's not going to make their grocery bill cheaper. It's not going to make everyday goods cheaper for them. Why would it? Why would it? Well, immediately it's not, but we've never seen anything happen immediately like today. It's turned the switch on and off. As soon as the act goes into uh, effect, I hope that all of the provisions will begin to work. I am. Uh, I, I know that those who have been blaming President Biden for the inflation going up are now giving President Biden all the credit for inflation going down. So we're moving things in the right direction already. Yeah, and what parts of the bill do you think will will quickly work on that specifically? Next question. So, so there's Joe Manchin. Now, I, I would argue that what we learned on Tuesday as well is that Kristen Sinema actually represents, see, Arizona is a state that is deeply mixed, partially red and partially MAGA red and partially Democrat. And they voted for establishment Republicans like John McCain in the past. But Kristen Sinema as a Democrat in that state, actually walks a fine line because I don't think she can be too liberal and still serve her constituents. Do you understand what I'm saying, Ted? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, let's let's not forget. I mean, is she in? I mean, she's in John McCain's old seat, right? I mean, and he was a right winger. I mean, he really was. And people sort of forget that. Oh, he was a maverick. Blah blah blah. I mean, you know, maybe stylistically, but not politically. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I think Arizona is in play in future presidential elections, but 
it's definitely not a blue state. Well, no, and I agree that West Virginia is also one of those states that is up for play. If I think if Manchin plays something wrong, if he takes a if he takes too democratic a position, I mean Democratic Party, not in favor of democracy. But if he takes too democratic a position on some issues, he's going to lose to a Republican up there. Do you agree that Joe Manchin is in constant danger of being replaced by Republicans dead? Well, I mean, I don't, you know, I'd have to talk, spend time in West Virginia and talk to West Virginians, but that's certainly from the outside, the impression that I get. I mean, the, it's a quirky state because it's got a long tradition of union activism, the coal miners. Um, it's, it, it, it has been radical. They're fiercely independent populist populism, but yet it has in recent 20, 30 years just become solidly Republican. So it's kind of a miracle that the Democrats even have that seat. Now, actually, let me ask you a question based on what you said there. Uh, do you think that the left has suffered from the fact that the unions it represents are more wimpy? L let me give an example. Back in the day, union organizing in the 30s was done around like coal miners and people who went in and actively fought against the Pinkertons. And today, the unions that they represent are like the SAIU. They're government bureaucrats. Now, I'm not saying government bureaucrats aren't wimpier than coal miners, but I'm saying government bureaucrats are wimpier than coal miners. So do you think the, the unions representing a less working class, you know, Oh, yeah. No, well, there's no question about that. I mean, union, first of all, overall union membership, of course, has has dropped precipitously. And then, yeah, uh, you know, the, the, when you think about the UAW and the Teamsters, the mine workers, um, they were all badasses. And they were, you know, they these people a century ago, you know, they, they were willing to mix it up. Uh, there was they were killed. Uh, they gave back as good as they got. Um, so it was, it's a different breed. There's fewer of them. They're softer. I mean, you know, now the future of unionism is, you know, and I'm happy about it, but it's organizing, you know, the Amazon warehouse and Starbucks, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, uh, you know, that's the frontiers of unionism are like retail and it's, uh, you know, and fresh direct. Dead, historically, no Pinkertons have ever been stopped by throwing latte. I think I'm correct on that. Yeah, I think I think you're not too far out on a on a limb there, Lee. Uh, so yeah, no, I think union. I mean, obviously unionism is it's 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 not doesn't have the power. Not to mention these guys also made a lot of money, so they could pay a lot of dues. You know, the the UAW workers could. You know, a lot of them made good solid six figure incomes. They sent their kids to college. They were able to pay. So you know the. They had good strike funds. They were able to wield a lot of political power. But then after a while, they sort of just became subsidiaries of democratic fundraising organizations. And the thing is, they, they net, there was really no chance that they were going to withhold their funds from the Democrats. And I think that's when they lost their, their leverage, when it became sort of automatic. And Ted, great conversation as usual. Ted Rawl, you can find his work and you might even pick up some for yourself 
at R-A-L-L.com, Rawl.com. That's where it is, right, Ted? That is where it is. Okay, thanks a lot, Ted Rawl. And that's it for the show. Great show today. Thanks so much to Rod for helping out with some of the technical problems. And Command Central, thank you. So we'll be back tomorrow. And coming up next week, Kim Iverson will be our guest on the show. So we're looking forward to having Kim back. But great appearance by John Mark Dugan and Ted Rawl and to our callers. We'll see you tomorrow on The Backstory. 